Hello and welcome to HeanCast. I'm your host, Kate Kerr. Those of you who follow us on social media may be aware that HeanNet is currently conducting a natural history study called Glansmas 360, which seeks to better understand the impact Glansmas has on those living with it and their families. If you want to get involved, a link will be in the episode description, or you can send an email to research at hemnet.com. During our research, we've discovered the Glansman's Research Foundation. And today I'm very happy to be speaking with their president and vice president about the foundation's goals and the challenges of the Glansman's community. So without further ado, welcome to Taylor and Peter. Would you both like to introduce yourself? So Taylor, would you like to go first? So my name is Taylor Bartz. I am the president of the Glansman's Research Foundation. I took over the foundation back in, oh my gosh, time is really running together, uh, 2019. After my mom, Helen Smith, passed away, she founded the Glansman's Research Foundation back in 2001. She founded it because my little sister, Julia, was diagnosed and she was a mom on a mission after that. And that's how it was born. Great. Thank you. I love moms on missions. They're great <laughs> dynamic and they make things happen, don't they? Peter? I'm Peter Zierski. I'm the vice president of the GRF. And uh, I was born with Glansman's and got diagnosed with it at eight months. And for a long time, I just knew I had it, didn't know anyone else with it. And I knew my mom was speaking online to a forum about it. And that happened to be how we all met. Helen Smith at the first conference took a larger role when she asked me to help out with the Facebook group and then the vice president role when Helen passed away. So I think one of the things we were going to ask you is what was your connection to Bondsman's? And you've both described that as having somebody in your family or yourself that was diagnosed. So how easy was it to get a diagnosis? Do you know? Because obviously, Peter, you were very little and we're talking about your little sister. Peter, I'm going to let you go first. I guess in my case, it was easier because I'm the more severe type. So I had more uh, signs of it. When we also run into people, I met a guy that was in his 70s and he had just been diagnosed. Wow. So it can be very different. I was, I guess, one of the luckier ones because I knew I had it earlier on. Yeah. So Julia was about the same. I think she was about six months, eight months. She presented with symptoms the minute she was born. She was covered in petechiae, bruises, and it was actually my grandmother. She was a lab technician at the Medical College of Georgia. She and the lab there, they basically ran every test that that you could imagine and finally were able to figure out that it was Glansman's. So about eight months, Julia was diagnosed. But again, like Peter said, if you don't present those symptoms you don't necessarily know that you need to be looking for something. Yeah, I think that's, that's very true. And as I've always just alluding to, it's a spectrum, isn't it, of people who don't believe very much. So you might get to being in your 70s before you get a diagnosis through to children that present with, I've seen oh, you know, yeah. five-day-old babies with nosebleeds. It's, it can be very severe. Absolutely. And even if people have the same exact mutation or the same exact level of severity, their bleeds can be completely different, which we always say this in our community is that everyone bleeds differently, whether, and they react differently to how they handle it and what works for them and what doesn't. So coming in and being like, Hey, I have type 
two of GT, what should I do? That's such a general question because there's not a specific answer. Um, you have to learn your own disorder and your own beliefs as they progress, which is a good thing and a bad thing because it makes you become more aware of your body and what works for it. But at the same time, we don't really have a one-size-fits-all answer. So that's just raised a question for me. So here in the UK, all of our care is provided free at the point of delivery to people uh, by the state, by the government. So everybody has access to the same kind of care. Now, I know that for people with haemophilia, that in America, the treatment varies depending on your state and depending on your insurer and whether you have free health care or not. So how does that work for people with Glansman's? Like you said, every state is different. So we have haemophilia treatment centers here that are available. But again, it's something that isn't very widely known as well. And it a lot of it really is based off of insurance. So that's where our little community comes in and is why it's so important is helping to navigate the actual medical world and figure out, okay, what do I need to ask for treatment-wise? How do I ask this? Insurance-wise, how do I do this? With public schools here, you also have to kind of get them involved and have a policy in place. They call it an IEP here. So it there's a lot of steps and it's very involved. Yeah. Complicated, isn't it? So what, Peter, you, you would perhaps be best to answer this. What kind of treatment do you get when you bleed and how do you access it? For me, I'm really one of those people that want to avoid the hospital at all costs. So I've got a ton of tricks in the book that work for me that I do first. Because when I do go to the hospital, especially right now, I don't have a hematherapist or a hematologist mm -hmm. right at the moment. So if I did go in, it would involve explaining my GT to them all over again and making sure that we're avoiding platelet transfusions and trying to go the no-closed And is that relatively easy to get your hands on wherever you are in the States? Can you get Novo 7 readily? Unfortunately for me, I might not be the right person to ask, but I was very close to getting it once. Okay. <laughs> so Peter is one of the very few people in the community who's never had Novo 7. The treatment of GT has changed so much just within the past 15 years. And Peter and I, I'm 32, Peter is just turned 30. So we seeing the difference with how it's being treated now as to how it was when we were growing up and me watching when Julia would go into the hospital and stuff. Novo 7 is typically the first thing that they do. And then they'll, and then they'll say a platelet transfusion, especially if it's a hematologist who's not very familiar with GT, they'll go and that first answer is a platelet transfusion. But there are so many little, like Peter said, little tricks and stuff that we learned growing up when Nova wasn't accessible before it was FDA approved. And hospital is something that the older generation of GT try to avoid as much as possible. The younger generation, we're seeing kind of a shift. It's almost every, not necessarily every bleed, but if a nosebleed or anything happens, immediately go into the hospital. And like we were talking about earlier, with the way that the medical system set up here and it's so complicated, there is a one system where 
your medical files are shared and everybody can see it. So when you go into the emergency room, you're inviting somebody in who does not know your medical history at all, and they're getting a say into your treatment. It's just a nosebleed, so why are you even here? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we, so we really advocate for that, just like basic wound care and stuff, trying to avoid the hospital, trying to avoid having too many chiefs in your medical treatment. You have, you worked hard to build a team and there's a reason why you worked hard to build that team and to undermine that and have somebody come in and potentially do some more harm it, it is scary. Novo has become much more available. There's a, uh, an organization here and, and I think that they're, they are international. It's called Save One Life. Uh -huh. They, they get Nova 7 out. We had a contact with Nova 7 where she helps in case like we can't get any. Um, the biggest thing with GT is the correct dosage of Nova 7. If you're not using the correct dosage, then it's not going to work and just kind of getting providers to understand what the correct dosage is. And it is different based on weight or your bleed severity. Um, very different from the dose that we would use in people with hemophilia with an inhibitor. I just wanted to quickly jump in there. I find that that's such an alien concept to me, especially that the older generation being avoidant of that sort of healthcare and hospital setting because of just how much is at stake and how much you have to then go through that whole rigmarole of re-advocating for yourself and trying to explain what glandsman's is and we hear from the hemophilia community how frustrating it is getting to a and e but mm -hmm. i think over the years in particular hemophilia has become a lot more known and recognized and people have at least heard of it i mean hemophilia is even like referenced in pop culture there's a simpsons episode that mentions it so someone may have even heard of it and but with glandsman's it, it's just so rare that i can't imagine where you even begin like going into a an emergency healthcare situation. And like you say, suddenly you're faced with this doctor who probably has no clue. And then on top of dealing with a bleed, you're having to try and <laughs> educate these healthcare providers on something. Oh, yeah. A funny story just relating to this. <laughs> when I went to college in Boston, and of course I was a busy college student, didn't want to get a team set up. So whenever I did have an emergency and went in, you know, it's Boston, it's a huge medical city. So I would become the guinea pig and all the medical students would come gather around my bed. Peter, you said you don't get Novo 7, but for those people that do get it, do they have it at home so they can start treating bleeds early or is it very much still a hospital administered treatment? They can. They can. <laughs> I wouldn't, I think me and Taylor both don't really recommend that. I think it would be better it's... in the hands of an expert. Okay. Yeah, we actually looked up the wording of the FDA approval, and it says under the supervision of a of your physician, it's it's a clotting agent. Yeah. So I don't think people necessarily think it all the way through where you could potentially create a clot somewhere that you don't want it to be. And so that's why you need to be supervised while it's while you're administering it, because what happens if you do start showing symptoms of having a clot somewhere and you're not at a hospital? It's a great drug to have. It's always compared to a bazooka. It's a great drug to have. It's great to come in and help with a severe bleed, but you don't need a bazooka 
to kill a fly on the wall. You could use a fly swatter. You don't need to go to Nova 7 every single time. And that's really because we don't, it's only been on the marketplace for GT for a certain amount of time and really only been approved for those severe cases. In the FDA approval, I think what we saw was that if platelet transfusions don't work, then do Nova 7. We don't agree with that uh, because platelet transfusions are like your Hail Mary. You don't want to do a platelet transfusion unless you have no other options. Um, but Nova 7 should be that step before a platelet transfusion because it is such a powerful medicine. I think I probably agree with you. I think it's very easy just to give it if you've got it without perhaps thinking about some of those potential side effects. Right. Yeah. So you've both alluded to the fact that you try to avoid having platelets too. <laughs> yes. So is there a reason why you do that? For what is a potentially life-threatening platelet disorder? <laughs> okay, so Peter's going to roll his eyes. I completely get this from my mother, how I put things into words. Getting a platelet transfusion for anybody is like smoking a cigarette. You never know which one is going to give you cancer. You never know which one is going to give you antibodies. Like I said before, your platelet transfusion is your... You know with platelet transfusions that you're putting working platelets into your body. So it it should work. But the risk is so high because what happens if you do that with each bleed and you build up antibodies and then you find yourself down the road with a severe gastrointestinal bleed and nothing's working. And now they have to find a specific matched platelet transfusion for you and they can't find it. Those are the types of situations we want to avoid. And that's why, again, you don't want to use your big weapons when a small weapon can work for it. You don't want to fight this and go ahead and pull your ace, right? Peter, this is such a, I guess, controversial topic within the GT community because it does go against a lot of what hematologists do say. They, they do push platelet transfusions because they know it works. And we get that. But because GT people have so many bleeds or have so many severe bleeds in their life, it's not, it's not what we recommend. My mom was very against platelets and very vocal about it. We try not to be as vocal because we don't want to, we don't want to isolate anybody and make them think that we disapprove of what they're doing. We just want to educate people and let them give them all of the information so they can make that decision on their own. We've known so many people who have built up antibodies. We've known people who have passed away because they couldn't get their hands on correct platelets. Um, and, and I think that's what makes us so passionate about it is we actually know people that this is affected. And that really, when you're able to make it personal like that, it really hits harder. And so do you know how big the gunsman's community is in the States? Do you know how many people there are? There's not like an official registry. Oh. I want to say it's a couple hundred, like closer to like around 500. I might be wrong. Peter, do you have a better idea? I, I would say around 500 or 600. Oh, this sorry, is also Peter. counting international people. So I still can't say. It's about 160 here in the UK. So I would guess you probably would have somewhere around about 500. Mm -hmm. Peter, I believe that you're a tattooed gentleman <laughs> and you would think tattoos and piercings in people who 
can bleed a lot and it would be a thing that you'd perhaps not do. So how did you decide to get tattooed and did you bleed, I suppose? I did bleed. <laughs> I, the, I would recommend if anyone wants to get tattoos is they start very small and they pick a spot on the body that gets a lot of sun because those spots on your body are less sensitive and usually bleed less on anybody. So do something very small. And I, that's what I did. I went to an artist. I, I told him I bled a lot more than others. I might not have told him that I had GT. And we went ahead and did it. He was a little surprised, but honestly, afterwards, it gave him a story that he loves to tell everybody still. And weirdly, it healed very well. Tattoos, you'd think all the ache is going to bleed out, but it worked out. And it didn't stop you having some more. <laughs> so it's obviously fairly successful. Yeah, it didn't it didn't bleed as much as you'd think. It bled during the process and then afterwards I iced it. So you two are the president and the vice president of the Glansman's from Senior Research Foundation. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is? Oh, I'm making you go, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're a group that is the primary goal is we're looking for a cure for glasmus thrombosthenia, but we also want to provide a community and a place for those who have the diagnosis to come for with any questions, if they need help during the process of living with glasmus and just giving them hope. A lot of these people are coming to us and they don't even realize that there's such a large group that have the same diagnosis that they have. And, and is your membership international? Yes. Do you have an idea, are they mostly from like the developed world or if you've got members from lower and middle income countries, perhaps where there might be more glansmans, but getting the diagnosis and treatment is more difficult? I would say the US is the largest. We have a lot in Europe and then um, India is a very large area as well. And you just said then that you're hoping to find a cure. Do you know of anything on the horizon at the moment for that? I don't know if this is a secret or not, Taylor. <laughs> okay, so I'll answer this one. Um, so like Peter said, the raising the funding to find a cure, that was why the foundation started. My mom actually stumbled across Dr. David Wilcox at the Medical College of Wisconsin and saw that he was doing research to cure Klansman's and he was the only one out there who was even really paying attention to Klansman's and so she told him asked him what do you need he said money and she said okay so she created the foundation and he has made enormous strides over the years he was able to cure Glansman's thrombosemia in some Great Pyrenees puppies. So Great Pyrenees, they, for some reason, they're genetically predispositioned to get Glansman's thrombosemia. So it was naturally occurring in these dogs. They were uh, sent to him. He was able to cure it in them and then was able to work, move on to human cells, was able to correct it in human cells. And now we're working on the funding for the next steps, which over here in the States is quite a few steps. 
we're kind of at that last hurdle, but this hurdle is very large. It's about $5 million for us to get to clinical trials. So his gene therapy, his method and everything can be used in hemophilia as well. And so he is focusing on that too and is hope is working on getting funding to start clinical trials in hemophilia because it's easier for him to get funding for that. And then if it works, then hopefully he will be able to get funding for GT and we'll, we'll have that. But gene therapy is uh, still very new here. Uh, there's still a lot of uh, unknowns about it and it's starting to take off more and more. Uh, COVID kind of slowed everything down a lot. The research world basically came to a screeching halt over here during the pandemic. So now everything's starting to take back off and we're starting to gain momentum again. And we're very hopeful. We know, we know that what he has works. We just have to get to that next step and we have to get the clinical trials done and get it approved. Honestly, it's not, I don't think that it's going to be one of those things that necessarily works for everybody, but it's still an option out there, which is something that people with GT don't really have. There aren't very many options available. So adding another option is always a good thing. And if he can prove that you can do it once, then maybe other researchers will try to come up with other ways as well. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that as Luke just alluded to earlier, he has hemophilia, he's had gene therapy and within the world of hemophilia, I guess that's becoming an accepted treatment for people with severe hemophilia. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to look at the other bleeding disorders and Glansman's is one that keeps popping up as a mm-hmm. as potential new treatments coming and one of those might be gene therapy. And that is not just something that people are talking about, but actually are presenting at international meetings now. So I think it's probably closer than it was for ages. But when I started as a haemophilia nurse, haemophilia gene therapy was always five years away. 30 yeah. years later, it's here, but only if you're in adults and only if you're in I I completely empathize with that because it was the same way growing up. It's like we could be 10 years away from a cure. And when it comes down to funding and money being the one, like the biggest obstacle, that gets so frustrating. But it's so exciting to hear that there are so many different things in the works. Because like I said, there, there just aren't that many options to be able to all of a sudden have all these options and say, hey, if you don't like this and it doesn't make you feel great and everything, maybe you could try this, which is something that our community doesn't have right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if that is all five years away or 10 years away, 30 years away, <laughs> is there something that you think that could be done that would have an impact in the immediate short term? Are there things that would make life better? We got to get more in-person meetings going. COVID's mm-hmm. really affecting that. And when you see someone face to face and you're seeing a huge group of people that have exactly what you have, they don't understand the effect it can have until it actually happens. So I want to get that back on track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The education and the getting everybody together is such a huge thing. I was lucky enough and, and Peter all found us at a very early age with you, but I was 11 when we did our first fundraiser and my parents made sure to get Dr. Wilcox out. We had some GT families who were close and we had some who were across the country that came. And I think that first time when everybody was together, when you're told 
that what you have is so rare that you're one in a million. It's very isolating. It's very isolating for the caregivers as well. And so the impact of having actually meeting, not just talking online or anything, but actually being in the same space and same area. I mean, it's otherworldly to watch and see. I'm actually getting goosebumps right now talking about it because you're not strangers. You've never met in person, but you're not strangers. You've been yep. through something together. You, it's somebody who truly understands. And that's not common in our community. The in-person stuff is massive right now. And what I think is really interesting is, uh, and I'm going to say just in inverted commas, you're just a sibling. You haven't got glansmans, and yet the impact is beyond your sister. It is to the siblings, your parents, the grandparents, the whole extended family are mm-hmm. impacted by living with somebody with glansmans, and we're probably not very good at supporting you through that. And that's maybe why meeting other families, you can share those experiences, can't you? Yeah, and even like siblings just um, watching. So I'm eight years older than my sister, and my brother is one one and a half years older than my sister, two years older, something like that. So even talking to him about his experience and what he felt growing up with her and just like how it affected us, but then also watching how it affected our parents and getting to watch our parents grow as advocates Mm -hmm. and seeing them set that example for us is there aren't very many people who get to witness that and who get to experience that growing up. That's something that typically once you hit your teens, that's when you start to really learn how to stand up for yourself and have that confidence and know know that you know what you're talking about. And to have to have a family that is so supportive and a community that's so supportive in that way, it really does. Is I the, With all the negatives that come with it, it's also such a positive thing because I think that it's creating these human beings who genuinely care about what other people are going through. They're not afraid to speak up and they, they're not afraid to advocate for themselves as well. And we're seeing that a lot with, with the younger kids and with the GT and everything as well. We don't really have a whole lot of kind of have like waves. We have, much older people with GT. Then we have people who are in their 30s, mid 20s with GT. And then now we have like young, like under 10 with GT, really. We have some gaps in there. So it is interesting to watch that and to see how it goes. But the families really just having that support and pushing that support is the biggest thing. I, I just wanted to jump in and ask a question to both of you. And you've described just how important having that patient network where families and people with GT can come together is and and something that I can really empathize with and relate to given the world of hemophilia but with glansman's being so rare I can imagine it's a lot harder but I wondered if you'd had any experience with the say the National Hemophilia Foundation in the US and I know in UK and Europe we have different organizations that are starting to recognize and put more effort into the super rare bleeding disorders and providing support, but it's not about its difficulties. And I still think at times I get the sense that it is kind of they're part of the community, but a lot of the time there's not necessarily a lot there for them when these events are put on. And I just wondered if 
given your own experiences or experiences you've heard from others in the community, what, what it's been like to try and have that integration with the wider bleeding disorders world where so often the spotlight is just on hemophilia. You definitely have to take a step back because the emotional reaction of it is, oh, hold on, why all of a sudden are you paying attention to us? But also when you've been so cut off from that community, when, you know, we have people who have gone to the hemophilia bleeding camps and stuff like summer camps and stuff, and they just didn't really like it all that much, just felt like very outsider type deal. So then when you're all of a sudden being invited to a lot of these things and you're like, yes, okay, finally, like I'm going to get, I'm going to get my chance, but you're also lumped together with these other bleeding disorders that are super rare, but they really aren't the same. So to have one presentation over mm -hmm. just rare bleeding disorders in general, where you're educating us, but you're not telling us anything new. You're telling us stuff that we've known since the beginning because we had to learn that at an early time. It's frustrating. I appreciate the effort. I think they realized that it's still a little isolating. And so they've started steering committees and stuff like that, trying to figure out a better way to handle it. And again, I really appreciate the effort and I, I hope that it continues. I just think there's a lot of growth left and it's hard for people again when you're scattered all around when you do these in-person conferences and stuff you want it to be worth it because you're having to travel I don't know how it is for hemophilia but I know how it is for people with GT getting mm. on a plane is and not the same as like me getting on a plane yeah getting on a plane means you're most likely going to have a nosebleed and you don't know if that nosebleed is going to be severe or not severe and then you're going to be in a whole new city and you don't necessarily know anybody there. So it's a whole thing going to these things. And so to go and feel like you didn't necessarily learn anything or feel like you didn't necessarily make any progress can be very frustrating. And again, I think that there's a lot of growth and I appreciate the effort and I hope that they continue pushing with the rare bleeding disorders and everything. Yeah. And like you said, you've been doing all of this stuff on your own and setting up the Landsman's Research Foundation. You don't want to go somewhere. It feels like you're being told what you already know. And, and to me, it seems like you've managed to create this really great community and reach out to people with such a rare condition and that the foundation itself would actually benefit from direct support to them rather than suddenly, you know, come along to our rare bleeding disorder track where you're trying to cram in God knows how many rare bleeding disorders into a couple of hour presentations, which is, you know, they're complicated. Like, Hemophilia, for the most part, and how people can say, oh, it's relatively simple to understand, but these rarer bleeding disorders like Glansman's, and when it comes to anything to do with platelets, it's just over my head. Those presentations, you know, GT ends up being, I think, three slides on a PowerPoint. Yeah. And for it to be summed up into three slides on a PowerPoint is so frustrating because mm. it is. Yes, everybody with bleeding disorders, they bleed, but the reasons why behind it are so different. And so to throw all that information out very quickly and not help somebody understand the why of it. Yeah, I think that unsettles some people. But um, I love the fact that you're like, I think that direct support to the foundation would be great because I'm like, yes, bring it. Like, <laughs> let's get a conference going. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's all going to build it and they will come, but it, exactly. it's already built. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you both very much. So 
I don't have any other questions. Is there anything else you think you would like to share with us that we've missed, Peter? If anyone with GT is listening, we have a great Facebook group that you can join. You can ask any questions, share anything that you've learned. It's the Landsman's Thromosthenia support group. And just ask to be added and we'll add you. And I know from people here in the UK who are members of that group that they find it really helpful. So thank you for having that as well. That's big international pull for people. Thank you. Yeah, and we do. We have people from all over the place in there. And we've had people who have found each other within their own countries or within their own states through the group, which is, again, to be able to have somebody nearby that you can see in person who's going through something similar is extremely empowering. And I love the uh, translation tool. I feel like I have friends in Italy now. And I will say fluent Italian pasta order. <laughs> yeah. And I will say this, I'm cheesy, but I always refer to our community as a family, as the GT family, because it is, it's a very personal forum where you become invested in these people's lives and they do become family. So if you have GT and you're listening, it, I do this is not me being biased whatsoever. I do recommend it. There's, we try not to push towards anything in particular on there is, it is a forum for you to come in and ask questions and, and, and just share your experience. That's great. So thank you both once again. Thank you. Thanks. So thank you again to Taylor and Peter for what I think was a very interesting Heemcast. Totally agreed, Kate. A really interesting insight into the Glansman's community. As an advocate, I really love to hear these sorts of stories from people out there like Taylor and Peter, who are really doing the advocacy work required to build a community from the ground up. And it was great to get an insight into the similarities, but perhaps more importantly, the differences for people with GT compared to those with haemophilia. I think it's really important that those of us in the haemophilia community do more to support those with the other rare bleeding disorders, such as Glansman's. We are a really well-established community and do some great advocacy work, and we need to do as much as we can to advocate for everyone with a rare bleeding disorder to get access to better care and treatments. So thank you for joining us today, and a final thank you to our sponsors, CSL Bearing, Chugai, Roche, Sobi, and Takeda, who make Hemecast possible. 